Welcome to the Angus Conversation. I'm your host, Miranda Ryman, with my co-host, Mark McCulley. And we're fitting in our last podcast episode before the Angus Convention, which will be happening here in a couple of weeks. So, Mark, it has been busy in St. Joe, as we we often say on this podcast, but I'd say we have everything from events and education and communication and all the work that goes into the Angus Convention to the other side, some new genetics tools that recently launched or are launching right after this podcast drops. Yeah, it's, it has been a lot going on and and things that have been in progress and work uh, in work for a while, and that being the World Angus Evaluation that came out. Uh, we've gotten a lot of really great feedback from our membership from that and uh, a functional longevity research EPD. You've probably been hearing us talk about that for a while. The, the team is uh, is rolling that out again in a research uh, phase uh, here this week. And so I know a lot of breeders have been looking forward to that. And, and as you mentioned, the convention, that is, of course, uh, an event that we spend a lot of time planning for. We know we we love getting the Angus family together. We have a diverse membership with diverse interests, and we always try to cater uh, a program that has a little bit of something for everybody. I know, Mark, I've seen several breeders on my social media feed talking about how they're excited to get together with people in person and see their Angus family there in Orlando. And the conversation that we just had with Leo and Sam McDonald makes me even more excited for that. Yeah, it is. You know, Leo and Sam, actually, we got to to recognize them last year convention as uh, Angus Heritage Foundation inductees. Uh, uh, we just had a great discussion with them both. Many would know uh, the McDonald's for the Midland Bull Test. So we got to really hear uh, kind of the story of Midland and and uh, uh, some of the great innovations and the drivers behind the innovations and the and, and their philosophies there. I think that was just some great insight. We got to hear about uh, Leo's uh, excitement and passion for the future, and and uh, and then also I think just some great insight to to thoughts around how do we as an industry have good healthy dialogue, and even at times when we don't all see things the same way. Well, today on the podcast we have Leo and Sam McDonald. I'm very excited. I got to see their place when I was out at the Montana Angus tour earlier this year when we were out at Midland Bull Test, but long time at the helm there. Of course, that was started by Leo's father. And now I understand that McDonald Angus is kind of the the main focus for you guys with locations in Montana, North Dakota, and Nebraska. Got family involved, I believe four kids and how many grandkids? We have 16 grandkids and two great grandkids. Excellent. And of course, many know Leo's name. He's served on multiple leadership positions over the years in the beef industry, including the American Angus Association Board of Directors, received the Beef Improvement Federation Pioneer Award about 10 years or 11 years ago now, um, and just very, very well-known name for your leadership in the business and also your longstanding involvement in the Montana egg, egg industry up there. So I guess I, I mentioned this before we got started that I had read a lot about Leo and I know Leo quite a bit, but I see you guys as a pair that works together quite often. So maybe start by giving me just a little bit of your background when you became Leo and Sam and Sam, tell me a little bit about your background growing up and things like that. Well, growing up, I was raised on a farm and we had commercial cattle. We had that for years. So we, when I got involved with Midland, I Leo and I got married in 1986. I'm sorry, in 1988. 
<laughs> got engaged at uh, we hosted a national Angus tour here in 87 or 88 the yeah. national Angus conference was in Billings and we actually got engaged uh, after the stop that night at our place oh I love that it's a great story you talk about Angus now right <laughs> You're telling me after you got ready to host a whole bunch of people and had that place together, not only were you still on speaking terms, but you also said yes to a lifetime of that, Sam. <laughs> yes, I did. This was after she, uh, I think there was about 600 people on it. And I got the bright idea that wouldn't it be cool if we served certified Angus beef chicken fried steak and had big pots of gravy and big pots uh, over wood fires of sweet corn and mashed potatoes and so we had a lot of people set up to help us and sam organized it all and and then we had a, a walking string band and oh it was just a beautiful deal it's one of the funniest funnest tour stops we ever had but when it was all said and done which she said never again <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> at that point i just we didn't have it catered yeah he just called in on friends and family and that's what makes things work you know <laughs> you can't do it without your family and friends so yeah. it was a very big event leo did you did you propose in front of all 600 people was that kind of like <laughs> no. your strategy like there's no way she can say no in front of all these people <laughs> That would have been a good idea, but no, no, I didn't. No. It was cleaning up that night. And we survived. Yeah, we survived. Yes. We figured if we could get through that and all the cattle and people, yeah. I love that. So you grew up in a commercial operation. Leo, of course, you grew up in the Angus business right there around, around where you guys are at right now. Yes, in this valley. Yeah. Okay. Now you guys had a feedlot as well. Did you did you grow up with a, some feedlot background too? Didn't you, Leo? I grew up in a feedlot. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I mean, I'm not in it, but you know, I was there every weekend I yeah. could. And it was a large <laughs> one of the larger feedlots in Montana where we fed our bulls. Yeah. And then uh, I started my Angus herd when I was in high school with some cows from 376 daughters from Candy Angus. And also a few daughters from Larry Leonard Shoshone herd. And then uh, bought a few heifers out of the Nile female cell, which, by the way, is coming up this Saturday. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I grew up, it was kind of interesting. I grew up under all those kind of old performance uh, pioneers like Dell Davis and Rustinow and uh, in the Angus thing. Uh, Jorgensen's, even old Henry Gardner, you know, uh, we didn't lot, do a lot of business with the Gardner family, but I met him and he was a pretty neat man. I don't know. I shouldn't be dropping names because I'm missing some people that are pretty important, but <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, but I grew up in a feedlot and then I actually went to Texas Tech and studied uh, with plans of being a feedlot manager and staying down there in the panhandles. But uh, anyway, due to different reasons they ended up back in Montana. Talk a little bit about that growing up with your your dad and kind of some of those other pioneers in the performance movement. What did you learn from from them? Oh, wow. You know, I mean, that was such an interesting time, right? It, it's one of those uh, major shifts 
paradigm shifts, right? Uh, prior to that, uh, you know, everything was showed or sold on marketing techniques. Uh, the show thing was very big. And I clipped cattle and used to flew around with guys, junior and senior in high school. I clipped show bulls from Texas to wherever. But it was, I don't know, it was, it was a major shift in the industry. And so like anytime you have something like that, it's uh, any kind of significant change is, is met with resistance, especially in an industry that's pretty conservative, such as ours, uh, and a little bit slow to change because of that conservatism. So there was a lot of criticism towards those guys, and I saw some of it. You know, I didn't like it. That was my dad hmm. and my dad's friends. So, you know, how kids respond. But uh, I certainly learned a lot about people and, and uh, how to handle yourself when uh, you don't always get along with other people, but uh, how to be a little more forgiving and understanding, how to listen better, figure out what's really bothering them so you can uh, actually have a conversation with them instead of letting your emotions control it. Uh, just a lot of learning things from them. It was, those were amazing people. But you know, that's also was uh, what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, right? And those people were in every industry. I think there was a lot of changes going on across America at that time. I'm talking the 60s now. And so it, it was just a great time to be a young person and, and watch these people. And they were great mentors. I can remember guys like, uh, well, all those guys, when they come into the feedlot and look at the bulls, you know, I remember Bob Zitz coming in every spring and saying, hey, Leo, and, you know, here's this snot-nosed teenage kid. Saying, hey, what's the best bull here? Or Charlie Dushmaker with the Herefords or Chris Jacobson. I mean, they were just kind of that people. They were always cultivating young people. It was pretty neat. Yeah. I love that answer. And yet I expected that you were going to talk about the cattle and things you learned cattle related from him. So, well, you're talking, I mean, they changed everything, right? Like, I don't even know where to start on that. You also had a guy from Africa named Bonsma running around the country giving talks. And, uh, oh, he had some of the great uh, geneticists from the universities at that time. I, I'm not going to drop names on that because, I mean, that's, it was just, really exciting yeah there was so much change going on and then when they started seeing how fast the improvement could be made uh and everybody adopted it it was <laughs> your worst critics were all all of a sudden it was obvious your, then uh, yeah they were some of your best supporters all they were all engaged and uh like i said one of the things i really learned from them is is, is not not to be too rough on your critics to leave the doors open and you know, when that finally all came together, the breed associations and the show people and stuff, they were all still great friends and great supporters of each other. And heck of a good lesson in that right there. So talk a little, give us the timeline a little bit for, because it wasn't always Midland bull test, correct? Was it, was it, was it always called Midland or did it have a different yeah. name early? Okay. Nope. 1962. Okay. And uh, Midland, uh, this valley especially around billings was called the midland empire okay and so there were uh, two test stations that formed about that time there was one up oh i can't even remember the name of the town up towards great falls between lewistown and great falls uh 
and then dad started the one down here at Billings. We started with uh, 60 bulls. <laughs> so obviously he had another some other things going on, right? <laughs> uh, I think he was the, the auction yard guy on the radio like Bob Cook is with Pays. Uh, gave the market reports for the yards. He bought and sold a lot of feeder cattle. Worked with a lot of co-ops, farm co-op out through Iowa and stuff. The whole co-op would buy for everybody and then distribute the cattle. Uh, managed the feed store and uh, I don't know, he just kept busy. But then we started with 60 bulls in 62. I think the first sale was in 63. And from there it kind of grew, you know, and it grew pretty fast once it really took off. You you guys have been known as really on that leading edge of innovation. I think if I remember you, you were one of the first to start doing ultrasound back probably before ultrasound was hardly a thing. You started measuring feed intake and individual feed intake early, early on in that technology. Where's um, those are two that I think of. Um, you guys have just always been innovators. Yeah, we, I think we were the first ones to measure and publish scrotals. Uh, there had been qu quite a bit of research out of Colorado State on the relationship between scrotal size and first puberty in heifers. I'm not too sure we weren't one of the first to start semen testing. Uh, well, you know, when you talk about ultrasounding, we actually were measuring carcass traits before ultrasounding. There was a, a machine, I remember the university would come down and do it, and they'd make a little, and we were just measuring back fat, by the way. Yep. So they make a little slit in the hide, probably in that same area, up high on the 12th and 13th rib. And they poke a probe in there, and that little probe, they pull it out and they breed it. And uh, yeah, so. I don't think that would fly today. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> yeah, cool, right. So, you know, it's like anything. And we've been, uh, oh, we've been involved in EID and the cattle here. It's just about the time people start talking, but we use it as much for management as anything and record keeping but it's also handy for exporting and moving cattle across straight lines but you know the feed intake was uh measuring feed intake was a big step for us it was a huge step we put in uh i think it's still the largest system in north america we invested really heavily in it uh, we were sitting at the kitchen table and i'm sure my wife and kids thought i was crazy I think maybe Sam said that at the Montana Angus tour, didn't you, Sam? <laughs> yeah, there was a little possibility that I thought, oh, this is scary. Yeah, and I really thought, I thought we'd see uh, more adoption to it. I figured they'd take at least 10 years. So we're in year 16 right now. <laughs> <laughs> and it certainly isn't wild, but I will say, you know, we, we have enough we can't produce enough of these bulls for the demand we have. But, um, you know, it, I think it says a lot, a lot of things about our industry for one thing. Uh, and and I, I understand, and I, I don't begrudge anybody. It, it, I understand that it's very easy to sell bulls today. And, uh, and we did that through Midland as we built Midland up at one time, you know, I just, three-day sale and we'd sold a thousand bulls and it was kind of between Leachman and us who sold the most bulls each year and that was fun you know but I, I kind of you know you reach a plateau in life where you know it's not enough that wasn't enough for me and, and I was, we kind of 
took a step back and I told Sam and we visited about it. I said, I got to have a little more meaning uh, in our business. And I said, I, I really don't feel like we're fulfilling the mission of the performance breeders. Uh, and that is to service the cattlemen and major traits of economical that are economically important to them and keep them competitive. And, you know, you look at Poultry's improved their efficiency 250%, pork's 80%, you know, beef's probably 20% in the last 25 years. So, yeah, we, we took a big step back, uh, realizing that it was going to take a while and uh, humbled ourselves pretty good uh, because we weren't using pedigrees that were real popular, uh, but we were staying uh, very solid with maternal lines. Uh, that's really important out here in the West because a lot of our, a little different than a lot of the U.S., uh, a lot of our customers, that's their only income or their primary income. I think I read somewhere, Mark, that out of 800,000 uh, supposedly cattle producers in the U.S., and this was several years ago, only 36,000 of them uh, was the primary income from cattle. That's not much, you know, yeah. but those are the people we deal with out here in these more arid areas. So. It's always been important. The maternal link's been important for us to to keep a handle on. And, and of course, the ranchers, I mean, that's where our passion's always been. Make them more profitable, make them more relevant. And I still think today, and it might be another 10 years, that, if, you know, we've kind of maxed out in our environment where we can go with weaning weight without heavy supplementation. So we've maxed out the kind of growth that we can get to improve our net return, which says a lot about us as a purebred breeder. We've done a great job there. But now I think the next frontier is to make those cows more efficient, more productive. And the neat thing about it is if you do it right, because uh, there's lots of efficiency indicators, you get the right mix, uh, you, it'll have a big bang on the, on the feeding industry. And, you know, the fact that if we, at the end of the day, if we can cheapen up our product 20% at the retail counter, we're going to be more competitive and sell more products. So lots of neat things uh, that can evolve out of this. And no industry survives if they aren't efficient, you know. And certainly, as you talk about sustainability and regenerative ag, you can't even have those conversations without the efficient use of natural resources and whatnot and feeds. So anyway, it's still exciting for us. We have a lot of fun with it. We've still got a long ways to go. Yeah. And I know this has been a passion of yours. I've heard you speak on it for for years. And I, I guess as you look back at some of your early predictions of you, you again, you admitted you knew this was going to take a while. Have you been surprised or disappointed or frustrated that maybe you would say as an industry we still aren't paying enough attention to one of the most economically important traits of beef cattle production? That's a leading question. I was more leading than I meant for it. I think I just put words in your mouth. But I guess my, my where I meant to go is what's what's kept us from making more progress there. So what, well, you must have a law background with a question like that. Brandon knows I do that more than I mean to. So yeah, yeah, trial lawyer background. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, well, there's a lot. You know, that's a whole discussion in itself. But maybe the best way to start off: Have I been surprised? that it hasn't been adopted quicker. Uh, yeah, and you know what? Uh, I kicked myself in the butt for ignoring one of the real realities that's always been there and I knew it was there. 
you know, if, you, if you're in the dairy or the hog business, it, it's not very romantic, right? It's not really a lifestyle choice or chicken business, you know, and they major things to the penny. And uh, God bless it. I mean, I, I thank the Lord every day that we were born into this business, you know, and the people that we've been able to meet in the culture in rural America. But the cattle industry, too much of ranching is farming, or it's farming. Too much of ranching is lifestyle, right? People come back for lifestyle, and, and uh, we're getting more and more investors. And, of course, that's definitely a lifestyle choice for them, not so much business. And we get a lot of generational ranchers that are lifestyle. And, uh, you know, they don't, at the end of the day, we're probably the only ag industry that doesn't measure net return per acre. Every other commodity or every other produced commodity off land measures production per acre. You know, we're fortunate that the group of customers we have are very business minded and do kind of look at things like we do. But, you know, that's the biggest hurdle we have. And, and Mark, you know, we've all seen it. We see some of these good outfits on dry land conditions, chasing traits that probably are negative to them making uh, the, to their net returns per, per acre, you know. It probably hurts their cow herd, maybe even hurts the way they graze their land. Uh, you know, the cattle are too aggressive, too big of appetite, whatever. Uh, there's lots of scenarios and things that can affect that. But, that you know, that's that's been disappointing. It, it, um, we'll just be frank, uh, I'll tell you, uh, we've been, disappointed in uh, some of the breed associations, you know, they haven't pulled some of us guys together and say, hey, let's get ahead of this thing. You know, let's really take a hold of this thing because and uh, come up with with uh, some kind of tool that that ranchers can use to uh, make their cowherds more competitive, more relevant to keep the generational ranchers in, you know. Because this just living off two or three good years out of a cycle is not going to keep working with the cost that we have. And the other thing is the competition for the land, right? It's not all cattle competition anymore. It's not all agriculture competition. So, you know, we've got to do some things. We've got to sit down and, and efficiency is going to be part of those discussions and say, you know, uh, why do we even exist today? What's going to keep us relevant five, 10 years down the road and our customers and Discussions like we've had, you and I've had them when I was on the board, you know, I mean, those are so important to a business. And uh, you, as you can tell, I love this business. Yep. I'm getting excited. I care very much about it. And uh, But it takes takes leadership to help people get there. And uh, yeah, so I've been, you know, disappointed on a lot of fronts. Been, we've been blessed on a lot of fronts when we first started doing this. Uh, Bill Bowman came, came in and we sat down and we we're sending you guys a lot of data mm -hmm. yep. and uh they developed an rfid epd4 still get it and uh, you know so i don't want to think everything was criticism against the breed association i just thought it evolved more with those folks and some of the breeders uh we've had plenty of opportunities to uh, do other things with our uh, database we've got the largest individual intake database as far as I know anywhere and we need to do more with it we do a lot of genomics testing and uh, we're actually starting start, it's exciting me we're starting to see some correlations with dry matter intake with those intakes with the lines that we've been testing heavily we've had a little problem with the lines that haven't been tested 
And it's not surprising. You know, we all know the problems. You know, it's just because we don't have a big enough database. But we're going to get there one of these days. And uh, you know, it's things like that that we need to be getting on the table and and working with each other and trying to position our uh, breeders and associations and our customers you know, they, so they can capitalize on this and learn. I tell you what, we learn something new about this deal every year. Just about the time you think you got to figure it out. You go, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, and so we need more minds involved too, right? Yeah. You know, I think one of the challenges obviously is, is the, you know, most anybody can measure at birth weight or a weaning weight, right? What you're mm -hmm. doing there at Midland and other breeders have invested here, you know, more recently, if we look over the last right. decade or so of, of into the, the, the technology and the intake measurement systems. I mean, but it's, you know, those are harder phenotypes to get at. Um, I, you, I know you're always looking out on the, on the horizon. Are there some things out there you're seeing? I mean, I know one of the, the discussions is always, um, you know, what about the cow and, and, you know, do, you know, is a uh, feed efficiency on concentrate diet? How are we going to translate nicely and correlate nicely to the, to the cow? Are, are there any technologies out there or things you're seeing that have you excited about uh, being able to, to look at cow intakes for cow efficiencies? Or anything you can talk about, yeah. Yeah, well, there. I uh, will tell you, there's some things going on, Mark. Uh, I'm not real comfortable uh, disclosing them or where it's happening, and the reason I'm not comfortable is because want to validate it first, right? Make sure it works. It, it's not because it's a secret. I mean, oh, you know, we we're having discussions right now trying to pull in both of the feed intake systems databases together. And we're meeting a lot of resistance, mainly from the companies. But as breeders, I could care less whose systems they use. Let's just get the data. Let's get them merged. But back on the cow deal, deal we are doing some, uh, again, I, uh, we're actually going to publish a little bit in our catalog at our sale. But it's one of those deals where you better take little steps at a time. But we've been doing some work with the bio company measuring for certain proteins. Uh, this was actually developed in the human field. and. Uh, we just sent another set of uh, about 150 bulls in to, to have that have it tested to uh, see where these level of proteins are in these cattle and see their correlation with the females or with their intake. And uh, boy, if if we can get something like that working, then all of a sudden we can start testing females too, you know, for this without having to run through the systems instead of being able to do a limited number each year. We can do as many as we want, but again, we're we're in the early stages. We've run two or three groups through there, plus a lot of our sires. I can tell you, there's some other big breeders uh, testing their sires, and uh, I imagine they're all looking at it, us to validate it. I don't know, uh, and it also has a, a lot of high uh, maternal correlations. Until it's all validated, I hate to even discuss what we're what it is but we're doing stuff like that all the time we're working on it's had some conversations last week um and i think there's a couple other angus breeders doing it uh, i think west virginia might even be doing it uh working on some algorithms and don't ask me how that works okay but we're working with the scientists to develop correlations for intake on on the cows but we've seen there's been a lot of tests done in different countries and even in the u.s where they'll major rfi on heifer calves run them back through after they've had a couple calves through the systems and they pretty well hold their spot 
And we know there's a 90% correlation between how the bulls do and their daughters. But it's, you know, very conservative industry. Show me the money kind of people we deal with, right? Yep. <laughs> they want to see what you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, working on it, but we're not there, Mark. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of change, like phenotypically in the cattle since you've been focusing on feed efficiency or any changes that way? I mean, I say phenotypically, looking at them, you know what I meant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I've, I've heard some of our critics say they're long, tall, narrow things. And if you want to come to our cell, the last two years, the shortest little squattiest bull happened to be our high efficiency. So that's not true. But I do think it's like any trait. Uh, you, you've got to identify the phenotypes that work in your environment and then find those lines of cattle that excel within that trait that are adaptable to your environment. Because if all you're going to do is chase numbers, you're going to get in trouble real quick out here on these drier deals. And so I think you have to be very conscious of that. That also, when you do that, again, within any trade, you really limit your selection potential. But it's something you have to do. I mean, these, these cattle have to fit the environment. It takes too much money to get them into production. And it, and these when we do get them into production, they need to stay in the herd for these ranchers. Uh, that means they got to be fertile and good-footed and all, everything that keeps the cow in production, good udder teeth, the works, you know. But uh, to say that we identified a phenotype, I don't know if I could say that. I'll say this, in the early years, we used some bulls that historically wouldn't we wouldn't use to get us going. But that's where we identified them. And... Uh, you know, now there's enough people doing it and, uh, and we're working up with enough herds that we can stay within the lines we like and the types we like. Yeah. But uh, that's a great question because I think you have to be so careful. Yeah. The numbers aren't going to tell you if the cattle are going to fit in your environment. And But people like numbers because they're simple, whether it's EPDs or genomics or whatever. When it doesn't fit, it's not the numbers problem. It's the way you use the tool. You know, you've, you've got to know how the cattle and, and the phenotypes that fit your environment. I can't say that enough. And nobody likes, you know, everybody wants things quick and simple. And it doesn't work that way. And uh, I know Mark and I have discussed this. Yeah, I've discussed this with a lot of people. And some of them don't like that conversation, by the way. No, <laughs> they want no. the numbers to solve their problems. And it doesn't work that way. you got to have some stockman skills. The art and the science. Hey, back yeah. on mid, before we get off Midland, I kind of took us off there. Sorry, Miranda. Um, but <laughs> I, I'd be curious as you look back and maybe this, maybe this is a dangerous question for you, but some of the, I mean, there's been some, the bulls that have come through there specifically, are there, you know, the one that, you know, BR Midland obviously pops out is one that came through there and kept from, uh, uh, from Bob and Kathy Watkins and, and, uh, mm -hmm. uh are there some names of bulls? I know our, a lot of our listeners love to, uh, to 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 do some history lessons here. Are there some bulls that came through Midland that that you specially call out? Well, we have a board with photos in the office, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Whether I can remember them all. Not to put you on know. the spot. Yeah, I don't want you to have to pick one over another. But I remember that board. Yeah. Yeah, there's bulls like uh, PJM Cash, PJM PowerPoint. You know that. PowerPoint had a huge influence on the Leachman herd up at Bozeman, Montana, and other herds across the U.S. Well, 
we had bowls like uh, Midian Focus, you know, was mm-hmm. high selling semen bowl for I don't know how many years. Uh, yep, led in <laughs> registrations for a couple of years. Yeah, yep, CA uh, Future Direction, right? He led semen sales. Uh, <laughs> that was a we had a good friend up in Canada. Uh, yeah, how good a friend it is. I can't remember it right now, and I should. I know his daughters and his son, Gordon, uh, Bob Gordon. Yeah, Western breeders, right? Did you ever know Bob? I didn't. No. Oh, he was just—I can't say enough about him or his family. But uh, he was just a grand, grand gentleman. Uh, helped me a lot when we were going through the trade cases because uh, we were getting attacked by everybody, right, from Canada, and, and what we were doing helped their market as much as ours. And Bob understood that, but but he helped mentor me through my emotionals so i didn't get mad at people <laughs> but anyway bob bought ca future direction you know and i think future direction led seaman sales for three years and proved himself in australia right you know this is just kind of comical because it's always i always say some of our best bulls are out in the commercial herds uh, not in the purebred herds but bob bought ca future direction for twenty five hundred dollars <laughs> wow yes sir yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we've had a lot of great ang- uh, bulls too. You know, one thing we probably didn't talk about we should is, is because it's it's just so important to Midland and, and us and and how we all developed is this has always been a very family oriented business. We don't hire a lot of people. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, uh, my sisters worked at the feedlot. They also in the old days would type out on a little metal thing, somebody's name and address and down in the basement and mom had all that stuff. And I mean, it was pretty. It was painful. <laughs> I helped once. <laughs> yeah, it was very painful because they didn't have all the technology, right? I remember uh, in the late sixties, I mean, we went up to Bozeman and they had a room there that's probably 300 foot long with computers and we were popping those old punch cards in. And that whole machine, didn't do one percent of what your iPhone does today, but you know that's how it all started back then. But but all our family worked very hard, uh, equally as hard, and uh, we all came home when we were at college as much as we could to help dad. Uh, we clipped bowls, uh, wash bowls, we did everything, and uh, loved it as kids. You know, there's no better way. Uh, agriculture, one neat thing about it is let allows you to spend a lot of time with your kids because they're all out there helping you. Yeah. And uh, the, our family was no different. Uh, we had one boy and three daughters, and if they were around, they all helped. They were a horseback or doing something. I mean, the girls uh, would run the chute sometimes. I remember putting one on a bucket to run high hydraulics when we were weighing bolts. And, and now uh, our grandkids are all helping we had the they have two days off thursday and friday off and uh they're down freeze the boys are freeze brand grand boys were freeze brandon bowls today it's just uh and then sam's family her, her brothers are here at all the sales they're helping out back and their wives or especially roger's wife and her dad and mom man i mean ralph and bonnie just from the very first day we got married they they were there on way days. They were cooking lunches. They were there at the sales, always helping. It just, uh, just so important. We wouldn't have been here without family. 
Yeah, it just uh, we've been really blessed. And today our son runs the Midland Bull Test, and we have a daughter and her husband that bought the North Dakota unit and sold it and moved back by Buffalo, Wyoming, uh, which was always their plan, and we knew that. And so it, it's just nice, you know, that we have the interest. And uh, we have another daughter that's a very great artist, and she also helps run a museum in Buffalo that won some national awards this year. She went out to D.C. to receive them. Wow. And her youngest daughter, Buff, she teaches here in uh, Columbus, and her and her husband help us anytime we need help. And, uh, yeah, we just, we're just so blessed. Yeah, been so fortunate. So I'm sorry I got off on that. <laughs> no, that's no, fantastic. I love that. We wouldn't even we wouldn't yeah. have done anything without them. And it took every one of them to do it. I love that. I have heard you guys say before that you didn't inherit a penny, but you inherited a darn good set of values or something of that nature. Yeah. I, I think that maybe when people see a successful program like yours and the name recognition you have, they maybe don't remember back, you know, it. it it hasn't always been easy, right? Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got to realize <laughs> we built an all new, new facility in 1981. Six months later, interest was up around 20%. And oh, man, I, I can tell you, it was, yeah, I did some great stories. But, you know, through it all, just like anything in life, you know, you just maintain your honesty with people and, and your obligations. And yeah, we went through some very tough times. It's you know, we were 100% in debt. And then in 87, we bought a pretty good sized ranch after ranches had devalued pretty near 70% uh, with nothing down and 40 cows. And this place would run about five, 600 cows. We were really in debt. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the time you got married. I mean, yeah. that was right at the beginning. Right. Yeah, right. Within 12 months. <laughs> we'd, we'd live up at the ranch in the summertime because yeah. we didn't feed many cattle at the feedlot. And then we would move back to the feedlot, which was good with the kids in school. They didn't have to be driving on the county roads. Yeah. So, yeah, we were busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we took People say there's a high risk. And I don't think risk is the right word. I mean, I get maybe financially it's a high risk. but I, you know, I look at them like opportunities and you're not going to always succeed with everything, but who does? I don't know anybody that's really done a lot in life and you got to have a lot of want to now, but you know, that's kind of our obligation as people too, you know, not just to sit around, but go out there and make something happen. That's good for other people. And uh, that's always, you know, kind of the center of any of our breeding decisions in our business is a service. You know, I think if you have the right focus and the right, reasons i think good things can happen if as long as you're committed and work hard i mean i think i tell people today mark <laughs> hang up on me but i actually think there's more opportunities in the cattle industry today than when i was a kid when i come home in the 70s i look at all the things that you can do and you know it used to be when we weaned calves we hauled them to the yards that was it today you got all these programs and uh, we're starting to see People going out and building some packing plants. We've got some great uh, examples of um, how to make it work, like through U.S. premium beef and, and national beef. And, and uh, you've got so many different programs you can get in to market your feeder cattle, plus the ways that you can market resources on these Western ranches, the tourism, the dinosaur hunting, the hunting, uh, direct marketing. I mean, 
I wish I was about 50 years younger because <laughs> we'd probably even go harder because I really do. I hear people whining that it's what a tough business is. And I think back and I think, man, I wish I had all these opportunities, mm. you know, it just don't you think that, Mark? That's an awesome perspective. No, and so I was going to ask. This is the question I was getting ready to ask because I guarantee there's a there's a young Leo and Sam sitting out, going to be listening to this podcast that are that have dreams, that have vision about where they want to go. And my question was, you know, are you? What's your encouragement for them? What's your what? What would you tell them? Well, just kind of what I just told you. You, I mean, I think I need sit down and look at all these different areas that you can make a ranch work off of and then sit down and write out your goals. I mean, in short term and long term and put a pencil to some of this stuff and, and figure out your net returns. And, uh, you know, they've got, I, I don't like it, Mark, but they've got, it's like CRP owns GRP grazing programs. Yeah. yeah. I hate that because I saw what CRP did to a lot of the farming communities and the towns and main steep businesses but you know they've also got what this wean cap protection thing is like crop protection i really hate that but if they're gonna do it you cannot be a hard hit because you're going to compete against people who do do it and uh, just be dang careful you know how deep you get into some of these government programs because i think uh, i know i did a lot of stuff out in dc but i think when you look to the government to solve your problems i think right there should be the biggest red flag that ever hits you you know but if they're going to have that kind of stuff you need to take advantage of it. but you know the other stuff i talk about if you're a young person i don't care where you're at you know with amazon now you can market beef anywhere in the world you know get your stuff together uh there's a huge demand maybe your, your green beef programs that are climate friendly or sustainable uh we haven't even touched on that, what we can do as an industry. And I guarantee you, it's going to start with somebody like CAB started, some little guy that's really got their stuff together. And uh, they're going to take the lead on this thing. And they're going to, down the road, everybody be following them. I mean, there's just so many things you can do. It's just, God, a guy should get together and write all this stuff down, you know, <laughs> put it in a, you know, I mean, it's just there. It's just there. And you got to have the guts to go out and do something a little different than all the other folks. And, and uh, if it's going to make you relevant down the road or give you an edge or a niche, why wouldn't you do it? You know, don't wait for the market. To, yeah. Don't wait for the market to do it because then you're too late. It's early adopters, you know. So I saw as you were about to answer that question, Sam, you looked like you were about to give some advice too. Is <laughs> don't listen to Leo. Very yeah. well. That's what Leo's yeah. first advice is going to be. I was wondering, are you more risk adverse than him or are you just happy well, to I guarantee you what he never wrote anything down? <laughs> no, but I kind of knew where we were going. He knew where we were going. And I always trusted him and it's always worked out. You know, everybody says, like our cows now, we're scattered. We have wonderful people that are running them for us. But, I mean, we're from state to state. But the friends and the people that we have helping us do the hands-on stuff is amazing. Yeah. They really are. And we try and put our cows mostly with the all but one herd. Because we've had some herds in some other states, Mark. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I don't want to sound like a bragger, but 
you know, what we try and do is put them with young people that are aggressive and like-minded, uh, that uh, can get excited about the future, and also people that uh, meet people well, you know, that, uh, I don't know how to say it, but, you know, not ego, but people that... Uh, they like a challenge. They like a challenge, and they're bold enough and know how to handle people and respect people with different thoughts. There you go. And so we try and place it with them and do business with them and get herd started there. I know it's going to, and we, we like to see them position themselves uh, to where they have more cattle than we do down the road. Cause we're getting old. We're, I'm 71, be 72 pretty quick, you know, so I'm no dummy, but uh, you know, if we can help these young people get started with a good program and uh, a little future and uh, know where they're going. It, it can be very exciting for them, give them a lot of opportunity, and it helps us. So, yeah, and it's fun working with young people. You know, much funner work, working with young people than old people, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. So I have heard you talk in this interview about leadership, about service to the industry. It's kind of a good, or even um, maybe how to disagree with people gracefully. I think I heard that in that last question there, but kind of dovetails into... When I, if you Google Leo McDonald today, the very first thing that comes up is a, you're getting introduced to give a Senate test or testimony to the Senate Finance Committee in the last year, and I know that that's been, yeah, it it it's been numerous times that you've been called on in in situations like that. So I want to know, how does a a Montana cowboy find himself in that situation? Well, first of all, yeah. None of it would have happened without my wife. Okay. I think most good businessmen will say that, but especially the challenges we took on on behalf of ranchers. Because there was a lot of times, you know, we went hard for seven years and I was traveling all over. And Sam was basically running the whole business. And that was during our peak years. <laughs> so, yeah, never would have happened. So that whole thing happened uh, an evening at the dinner table again and told Sam, this isn't right, what's going on? And so I said, we need to study it. And uh, when we decided to form a group to file the trade cases uh, against Canada and Mexico, which was the start of a lot of other policy changes that needed to be done. You know, a lot of people think we were anti-Canadians, you know. <laughs> we had some Canadian folks here the other day. They, the folks that understood what we were doing knew it was all about both sides of the border and correcting some problems that were diminishing our income and stressing this industry. That was a big take. And, uh, you know, I think we're all made different, right? And that's the way I was made. I got a big soft heart and uh, hmm. did we need to do it? No. Did we know it was going to hurt our business with some of the members of policy groups that didn't like us doing it? Yes, we did. Did it need to be done? Of course it needed to be done, you know. Nobody got hurt. Nobody got thrown in prison. Nobody got sued. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, some of these groups felt threatened <laughs> by a bunch of rogue ranchers. <laughs> no, but, I, you know, I, I couldn't tell you. It's just the way I'm made. You know, I, if I see a real bad wrong, I was that way when I was in high school and college. I, uh, you see somebody getting picked on, I... I had no patience for uh, that kind of stuff. And that's the way the Lord made me. So I would venture to guess some of your 
maybe this is wrong, but maybe some of your closest friends were sitting on the opposite side of some of those big issues that you took on. How do you maintain friendships and business relationships when you're in the business of offering up kind of opinion? How does it not get messy, I guess, in that space? Yeah, and I wish I could say that I was 100% true to myself all the time. You know, there's some times when uh, I probably got a little angry and behaved ways I shouldn't. But as far as affecting friendships with with true friends, you know, one of the things is I always look at their families. They got good wives, good kids, well-respected in the community. The fact that they have a different ideology than me doesn't make me smarter or better than them. <laughs> I'd like to say I was 100% right all the time, and I wasn't. And it's because I kept those friendships that uh, and kept the doors open and tried to listen to them that, you know, I changed my mind sometimes. Sometimes they changed their mind. You know, it's pretty cool when we had those trade cases. I made sure that I had people that were uh, very well respected in stock grower groups, NCBA, Farm Bureau, Farmers Union, LMA, uh, on that board to start with. We had just, it was a great group of people. And uh, unfortunately, they term limit out and other people come in with different uh, ideas and try and take advantage of your, what you've done, right? Of your platform and try and push some of their stuff on it. So, and that happens in life, you know, but yeah, I mean, I just, I don't have any problem with somebody that has a difference in me, with my opinion, unless their difference is because it's self-serving or to cause others harm, or it's, or it's ego that uh, they just got so much ego, they can't change their mind. I got problems with those kind of people, but they tend to self-destroy anyway in time. But, uh, you know, I, I think what made us strong is just like the bull test. I think our critics made us better in the policy issues, in, our, in the bull test, because some of the guys that didn't support performance testing when it started, some of them, they were still great friends of my dad and our family, you know, and, uh, and their criticism probably helped make everybody do things a little better, made you validate things better. Uh, so it's not all bad. You know, the main thing though, through it all is, you know, as long as people have ideologies with the good of man and in them, uh, you know, you need to be careful because you're not always going to be right. So I was pretty fortunate. We kept a lot of great friends. I sat on the NCBA task force actually after I left NCBA and I was still kind of mad at him. And uh, Bill Donald up here at Melville was the president of NCBA and they were kind enough to ask me to come sit down on their long range planning deal and, uh, you know, that's what maintaining good friendships do. I mean, it, it was a good deal for them. And I think I opened their eyes to stuff and they certainly opened my eyes to some things within the industry. So it was all great. Leo, do you tend to find through your years of, of those? I mean, I, I would contend and we, we as a, as a cattle community, we tend to agree on 96, 98% of things, but we, we tend to get kind of separated on just a handful. And not to say that those handful of items aren't, aren't big items, uh, whether they're trade issues or market access issues or identification, all of those things we can all point to. But I, I guess if you, how do we do a, maybe at times a better job aligning as an industry? We all know, we all say it, we're such a small we're such a small group, we can't afford to be splintered, right? So do you have some thoughts and ideas how we maybe 
industry-wide do a little better job at times setting those few items that we don't agree on to side and, and align a little bit better on the on that all that big stuff that we do agree on? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, a great example is a healthy family and what the he healthy family do. And uh, not that we don't struggle in our family with all the kids and grandkids, but, you know, uh, you've got to be forgiving, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got to let the, the differences that you have, the big differences, you've got to check them in at the door. Find the things that have, have some meaning and uh, work on those anytime you can together. And, you know, we were great at that at one time with some of the coalitions we had. We'd find the areas that we agreed on. We built some huge coalitions uh, for passing some different legislation and stuff and through the trade cases. But, you know, I'm, I think what gets in the way most of the time is envy and ego and, you know, those kind of negative things. And you got to check that stuff at the door. Yeah. And you got you to have more respect for given ideologies. I mean, you know where I'm at on country of origin labeling. I love it. And I think it helped. And I think it could really help today, especially with the deforestation in Brazil and the problems we've had with the illegal use of growth promotants in Mexico. I mean, I guarantee if the consumers knew that, they wouldn't be buying any beef from Mexican cattle or, or beef because we still see these people getting sick down there. Same with the people that are concerned about climate change you know i mean we've reduced our footprint per pound of beef according to usda to the government by 20 percent in 15 or 20 years amazon's increased theirs i mean those are great marketing points right but that cool just one deal but the same with the markets hey i i get it when people say they don't want the government in their business i get it i really do but when you go and uh, to where you don't want them at all in the business to me that becomes more of an ideology and you forgot you know what this country was founded on and that it you've got to have a referee you've got to maintain the values and principles this country was founded on and uh and those are important i mean uh none of us want to ever lose those not if not for this country you know it's a great country when you look what it was founded on and and uh, so I don't know, when you get to real extreme differences and people quit listening, Mark, and you never want to quit listening, you know, the majority of our communication is listening, really. <laughs> it's not talking. Or Although I've, be. been, yeah. I've been talking a lot tonight, but, you know. <laughs> Sam smiled at that. <laughs> yeah, you've got to find that thing in there that we all love. Maybe it's ranching, maybe it's the cattle. And when you've got those issues, build from that, not from what you think is important, but build from that and try and show them how to help it. But it takes time. It takes listening. Uh, it, it takes a lot of humbleness and humility. And, but it also takes some boldness. I mean, you don't want to just say, oh, yeah, you're right, and walk away from it. You've got to be committed. And, and if it's not going to work, then you've got to be able to back down and find what does work and still work with those groups. And. I think that's really important. Don't don't run off like a hard head. I mean, we can't afford to splinter this industry much more. I think you said a mouthful in that it's it's not about it's what do you what do you care about? Do you care about this industry? Do you care about the betterment of of the families that are making their livelihood? Or do you care about your your being right? You know, and, and ego and and you just said it. Yeah, if, you, if all you care about being right, you shouldn't even come in the door, buddy. Yeah, yeah, that was well put. Um, I was going to ask. Uh part of that service to the industry and things like that I've heard you say before is also to 
think about the next generation or the people that are coming after you as well. What do you hope or what's your hope for the future in the kind of industry that your children now grandchildren will be, you know, what will they be talking about when they're in your seats right now? What will they be talking about? I hope they're here. You know, I have a real concern about generational ranchers and farmers staying in this business. Uh, we get a lot of investors coming in and buying this stuff. And, uh, you know, we have got to develop some things that entice some of these young people to, to stick around. And what it is, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of thoughts out there. I've listened to LMA's thoughts and NCBA's thoughts, and each one's are good. But uh, you've got to make it, you know, pretty relevant to them, the way they have enough faith to stay in this business. I just love rural America. And, and we don't want to lose those people because we won't have the rural America that we had. You know, I hope down the road, what are they talking about? I hope they're talking about all the opportunities they have. I hope they talk about uh, how blessed they are. To, you know, been born into rural America to be a farmer or rancher. I hope they're talking about the stuff we talked tonight. Talking about old crazy Leo and some of the big ideas he had. <laughs> well, and with all that said, I, I got to tell you, this group of young people coming into this industry, I think are better than the young people that came in when I came in back in the 70s. I think they're, and we had some good ones, right? You've met them. Man, these this, these young people that want to be in this business, and maybe this is true of any industry, the ones that really want to, boy, they are sharp. They know where they're going. They know what they want. Yeah, I'm just so impressed. But I do think, uh, I sure hate to lose these generational ranchers, you know, families, yeah, to the investors and stuff, but it'll be what it'll be. Sam, anything to add to that? I'm pretty sure she feels just like me. <laughs> I've been talking too much. She should have been talking more. Oh. Like I said, I hope and pray because, you know, it's such a wonderful way to raise a family. And I hope that the younger generation will be able to be given that opportunity. Because like in Montana, there's a lot of ranchers, ranches being sold and they're not running cows right now. You know, they want the wildlife and all that. And that's, that's scary to me. I hope some of our grandkids, I'm no, not all of them are going to come back this way, but I hope some of them are. Yeah. Well, good, healthy market will, uh, with some sustainability to it. <laughs> and I mean, sustainability of the profit will certainly solve a lot of those problems, keeping those young people in there. And, and I think, you know, we're sitting on the edge of probably one of the, I've always said, you know, the uniqueness of agriculture is high markets don't last very long, but we're actually sitting on the edge of something as you look at uh, cow herd size and drought problems other countries are having that, uh, and we're still having here that, uh, you know, we're going to get some gears out of this thing, uh, some good years. And, and through that period, if people will work a little bit harder and try and position themselves in this industry to uh, maintain a little more profitability on both sides, you know, we'll keep those people in it. Yeah, that's all our jobs. Yeah. yeah, we take that seriously too, Mark. Absolutely, and I mean, we we think about well. That's why you know, as an association, we what we do with the foundation and talking about the next generation. Th those aren't those aren't just empty words that sound good. I mean, it's really about making sure. I always say we've got young folks that are 
not only you know see themselves, but they're excited about their position in this industry down the road. And and we give them opportunities to, you know, I, I think what you what you were talking about earlier, finding some young people that that have that drive and that ambition and you give them the that that leg up and giving them that opportunity. That's incredible. You know, and I know there's others out there doing doing the same. You know, it's um starting in this business obviously from scratch is not an easy thing anymore but you know i i'm i'm like you i'm i'm pretty bullish and pretty optimistic if uh, there's there's so many you know i still i still come back to we have the protein that the the world craves and uh, as long as we stay focused on that and and uh, don't don't let uh, keep staying proactive with how we talk about our product and make sure that some of that misinformation doesn't put too much of a tarnish on our product. We, we just keep charging and there's going to be lots of opportunities out there for young folks that are willing to be creative and ambitious and work hard. So, yeah, well, the Angus foundation, it's long, as well as some of the other breeds. So well, probably all of them. I mean, right. those are so great. Those programs are just, uh, Oh, wow. I've looked at the young people that used to work for us and went through, uh, Junior Angus and, you know, like the Patterson boys, and I shouldn't start throwing names out. I'm going to miss some again. But, uh, boy, that is just, uh, I don't know what it does to those young people, but it, it helps build their confidence, gives them direction, uh, gives them leadership skills. I, I just think it's so important. that you, I mean, you know how I feel about the foundation. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's a great program. Yeah. Well, we've talked about markets and we've talked about the hard times and some heavy stuff and we always like to end the podcast on a total random question so your random question of the week um i want to know what the best place you've ever fished is <laughs> oh oh hey the kangas kind of helped us with this question he, <laughs> yeah. he, he wants specifics he wants your he wants your secret spots he wants a gps point probably right <laughs> oh Kang kangas does well, yeah. you know what? He made the mistake of giving me a, a, the best fishing holes on the Bighorn River years ago. And uh, I can tell you that Bighorn had some problems uh, with some overfills and some die outs. And, but it is coming back. And my best fishing spots have been on the Bighorn River. Yeah, where you catch 60, 70 fish a day. Your shoulders were tired. Now, it's <laughs> been several years it's been, been like that, but it's coming back. Sam, are you a fisherman too? Mm -hmm. Yes, I yep. do enjoy to fish. But honestly, back then, they would leave on icy roads, <laughs> and it wouldn't even be zero degrees, and they're down there fishing. And I'm going like, I'm a fair weather fisherman, but I do like to fish. Yeah, <laughs> that's that. awesome. Well, guys, we really appreciate you joining us, and I love the fact you both were able to join us. I'd I think Leo, you said it well. Um, you know, things that you've been able to go do and accomplish um, um, from from some of those out front, more visible roles are only possible, um, Sam, because of you and family that hold the the fort down. And I know we've got so many examples of that throughout our Angus family. But uh, just want to say thank you to you guys and and truly appreciate your your leadership and your I think just a fantastic conversation. I I, I can't imagine that that young people listening in particular aren't going to I hope leave with a little extra spring in their step, a little extra motivation uh, of of what's to come and and what's possible. And and uh, I thank you for that. I've always admired you for your willingness to share a perspective and have a conversation. And that is all about what we try to do here and be innovative and be a leader. And and uh, so we just we thank you guys. Uh, it was pr a pr privilege last was it last year? I guess we were also honored uh, honored you both in our 
Angus Heritage Foundation. Uh, maybe, Miranda, we can put a, a clip of uh, that in the show notes or something. A great video that kind of got to get you a firsthand look at your family. And that was, a, that was a fun one to do. So congratulations and thanks for being with us tonight. Well, thank you guys. Thank you. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, the heritage thing was very nicely done. And yeah, I'm always pretty humbled by those things, so is Sam. But uh, anyway, it's great having the talk with you, Mark. You know what I think of you. I just think the world of you. And uh, Miranda, just, uh, yeah, we've really enjoyed it. Thank well, you. Thank you, guys. We're looking forward to seeing you at Angus Convention, too. Be sure to look us up in the Angus Media booth, where we'll be recording podcast episodes live and in person. Drop by to tell us what you like and what we could do better. And I really mean that. Not registered? Visit AngusConvention.com. While we're in Orlando on Monday, November 6th, the annual convention of delegates will convene to carry out the business of the association, including electing five members to our board of directors. To hear directly from the candidates, visit AngusJournal.net. And to never miss an episode to this podcast, go ahead and hit subscribe in your favorite podcast platform. This has been the Angus Conversation, an Angus Journal podcast.